Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with Sylvia Dutkevich. Sylvia is a practicing psychotherapist with more than 20 years of experience. She's the president and founder of the Critical Therapy Institute and is a true believer in psychotherapy's power to change individuals who change the world. In this episode, Sylvia and I have an expansive conversation about how power is addressed in the clinical setting and how much healthcare providers actually analyze their own power. This was a great conversation, and I think you'll walk away connecting with it for sure in some way, whether personally or professionally. So grab your drink of choice, join us. You don't want to miss this episode. Hi, Sylvia. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking time, I'm sure, out of your busy schedule <laughs> to be here. I know you're chatting with me from your office right now, but I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with you on power and critical theory that you chat about. And you're a psychotherapist, I understand. And mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about your story and how you came to finding critical therapy. Yeah, so, uh, you know, let's start with power. One of the the interesting things about psychotherapy is that we talk about empowering people, and we talk about how to create more agency. Yet, as we know, especially as social workers, is that no one empowers anyone. People empower themselves. And in the therapeutic relationship, there's always a power dynamic. Because you're the therapist, you're the expert, but our patients are experts in their own lives. However, I think it's not just in psychotherapy, but in most areas of our lives, we don't want to talk about power in relationships. And that's because power has gotten a bad rap 
right? Uh, mm -hmm. We associate power with coercion. We also associate power with something that we have over a person. That's because we haven't learned how to share power with another. So you can see why it's problematic to talk about power, yet it is so necessary for agency, for creating agency, for creating and expanding democracy, to feel as an empowered individual who gets to make choices about my own life and also about how, you know, political choices affect my life and my mental health in a very real way. So I started thinking about how do we as therapists talk about power? How do we analyze power in the therapeutic relationship? And how does our different identities that we bring into the therapeutic space affect and impact our relationship to power? Mm -hmm. So if we want to be able to have more conversations around how social systems impact our mental health, it can't be done outside of the clinical hour. It has to also happen inside the space with our patients. And also in learning how to share power with our patients, we are learning with them and they are learning how to coexist with another, how to share power and how to really be able to at times feel less powerful and then other times more powerful than us. So is power then a shared, like, is it usually in the context of yourself and someone else, or is it also within oneself and only within oneself as well? Uh, power is always something that's in context with, right? Okay. Especially in relationship. It's a dynamic quality, but it's also within oneself, my place within society. How, what amount of power do I have as a woman? What do, amount of power do I have as a white woman? What amount of power do I have as a fact that I live in the United States as opposed to someone who, for example, lives in the global South and so forth. So there are the societal powers that impact and affect who we are and how we show up. Mm -hmm. And there's the dynamics of power that gets created and influenced by society. How you and I show up in a room might be very different than how I show up with a man in a room and so forth. Yeah, which I totally get. So in the context of healthcare, then when we're thinking of healthcare providers and our well-being and, you know, we're frontline, right? So when I think about power, there's always a dynamic there you know, organizationally, but also systematically, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, so thinking beyond. So how does it show up for us? I mean, you're a healthcare provider yourself. So how do you find that it can also impact our well-being positively and negatively? Well, I think, you know, not all healthcare providers are created equal, unfortunately. And, you know, for example, nurses that have helped and continue to help and have been such an essential part of COVID-19 care, they don't necessarily get the recognitions as doctors do, right? I think that's also because it's a very gendered profession. The way that, especially in the United States, the way that insurance companies get to reimburse people in the, you know, healthcare industry shows you who is more valuable and why, you know, a psychiatrist versus a psychotherapist. And I think it reflects the way our society thinks about our health. We claim that we have a mind-body connection. We want to think that mental health is just as important as physical health, yet we don't reimburse the same. We don't allow people to have, you know, um, psychotherapy for a longer period of time. I mean, no one, especially in the United States, no one says, well, you should stop treatment because you had 10 sessions, you should be better. But, you know, unfortunately, in the United States, they do even for physical health and mental health, because we have a, an atrocious like healthcare system. 
But Mm -hmm. I think there is something about how do we value and how do we enable people to take care of their mental health at the same rate that we enable and we allow people to take care of their physical health. We still have this underlying, maybe even unconscious notion that somehow if you're not well mentally, it's your fault. You mm-hmm. should have been stronger. You should have done something different as opposed to it's just something that affects you. Just like if I broke a leg, maybe it's my fault, but maybe it's not. Right. And accidents happen, right? Like circumstances happen. I saw a quote the other day and I thought it was interesting. I can't remember who said it with respect to mental health. And it was about people don't fake having mental illness, but they fake being okay because of what you basically just said, that the onus is usually on them. Uh, And the stigma, you know, of having mental health issues. And that connects us to part of your question about how are healthcare providers doing? And especially after a pandemic, I don't think anyone's doing okay. Because there's been such a, first of all, there's been fear of being, you know, if you're on the front lines of getting COVID, of how that is going to impact your physical health and mental health. And also there's the, there was the mental fear of what's going to happen to me. And if I get it, am I going to be one of those long term patients with COVID? And it's a very serious, it was a very serious illness. It was a very serious pandemic. And all of us are trying, trying to do the best that we can, I think. Mm-hmm. And especially for therapists, we had to carry a lot, right? Yeah. We had to hear stories. We had to sit with a lot of losses. We had to sit with a lot of anxiety. And all that, as well-trained and as well-therapized as we are, impacts us because we're human beings. And I, I hope it impacts us because otherwise we would just be machines and that wouldn't be good. Exactly. So who helps you take care of you, Sylvia? Like, you know... Yeah, good question. I, I mean, two things. I I have a great support system. Uh, I manage to surround myself with colleagues that are awesome. And I think that stimulates me intellectually and feeds me. Mm-hmm. I also have a great family and I have a lot of support from them. And that's important. And we genuinely like each other. You know, we laugh, which is amazing. I'm like, wow, we, we still like each other after all this time. Yeah. So that's great. <laughs> um, but I also think it's important, especially healthcare providers, right? We went into these professions because we want to help, because we want to be useful, because we want to give something to the world. And sometimes we forget that we need to also take care of ourselves. And, you know, it's sort of like the oxygen masks when you're on a plane, you put it on yourself first and then to the person next to you. But Mm -hmm. we forget that. And I think we forget that because we're not taught to do it. In in schools, we talk about, oh, burnout, but we are actually not given the tools of how to do this job and how to care about our patients and also have boundaries. I almost feel, especially in psychotherapy, that there is almost a defense against caring, like create boundaries as if somehow we can't love and care about the people that we see and also have boundaries. It's not an either or. Yeah, I totally feel that because I, I do find like sometimes that the context in which that's talked about can can come across as being almost hostile a bit and negative right. a bit in terms of boundaries. You know, you men- mentioned something earlier and I was going to just mention how I related to it. You know, I've been practicing as a physiotherapist for I'm going on my 15th year, but 14 years now. And I love what I do. And, and you know, when you talked about COVID and, and the fear of, you know, contracting it, I did contract it twice. And that fear is there. But I remember like, 
just, I've worked with so many people over the years who've been through some horrible things and some life-changing circumstances. And, you know, when you're so close to it as a provider, you think about, like, you think about yourself in that situation sometimes, right? And like you said, you know, that cumulative fear that can can develop at that time. But I never thought about it, though, to be honest with you, Sylvia, from the mental health standpoint. Like I've always looked at someone's physical. I just, that hit me when you were mentioning it. And I don't know why it's never hit me like that before, but something about you, the way you said it made me realize like someone who struggling mentally and is suffering from some kind of mental illness, you know, I don't think of myself in that context as much mm-hmm. as I do when someone's struggling physically. So you kind of highlighted something new for me and enlightened me there. So that was, that was kind of and, cool. <laughs> yeah, It's yeah. funny when you mentioned that, because one of the things about COVID, it was the isolation talk about touch, right? As a physiotherapist, you touch people. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just so curious now as we're trying to come out of the pandemic, how people feel about touch. It's something we all crave, but something we're so afraid to do. Yeah. So I, I wonder how that, you know, how that ends up with the people that you see day in and day out that need touch. I mean, in order to heal literally, but also needed mentally. And also the anxiety that comes having been told for the past two years, touch is dangerous, right? Being too close can kill you, literally. Yeah. And we know that the opposite is true in terms of connection and healing, which is wild to me. You're right. We've kind of like done a 180 with with respect to that. So when you're working with um, clients in therapy and you're looking at power, what kind of people might you like, if you have to profile some of your, your patients who come in or your clients who come in, like what are some themes that you see when it comes to a lack of awareness with respect to power and how to self-empower oneself again? Because I do sometimes find Sylvia in the clinical setting that, you know, I'm guiding patients to make informed decisions for them, whether I agree with them or not. And I, and that's the process of empowerment, I think through that journey, rather than I'm the expert and, you know, but like you said, inherently there is a power dynamic there, right? So I guess I'm just wondering, like, what types of clients you see lately and this, and how do you guide them to become more empowered? So we see people from all walks of life. Um, also, because we have a social justice model, we also see a lot of people who are activists and social justice warriors, as we call them, who sometimes get too burned out doing this work. We see people who have no clue about critical therapy. They just come to us because they need therapy and then discover, wow, this is really different. One of the things about power and learning how to talk about it. You know, it's funny when you talk about clients or patients, it's not just patients who don't know how to talk about power. It's also providers. Yeah. You know, I train a lot of therapists who are so nervous about claiming that they have power, although they have the power. And and I think it's, again, this idea, well, if I have power, that's a bad thing. So I would like for all of us, especially uh, healthcare providers, to switch power as not something that we have over someone, but rather a responsibility to someone. Mm. And and if you think about parenting, right? We don't think about parenting this way. We think of parenting again in this model of power over. I have power over my child. They should do what I told them to do because I know better. As opposed to I have a responsibility to my child and there has to be some sense of agency that they get Mm -hmm. and a responsibility that if they want to run into traffic, that's probably not a good idea. So how do you balance that? And I don't think we do a good job in parenting. That's why I think as a society, we don't do a good job at work. We don't do a good job in politics. We don't do a good job at sharing power anywhere else. So I Mm -hmm. think therapy is the place to start. Mm -hmm. But because 
We don't do a good job sharing power. I think it's really inauthentic. And this is why critical therapy is a little different. I think it's inauthentic when a patient comes in that I clearly have power over for me to be like, now we're going to be sharing power. And I know you've never done it before in a real way, or you may not trust me because people have disappointed you, but let's just try anyway. That's not authentic. So Mm -hmm. what we do instead is we start from a very traditional model of psychotherapy, which is that we have power over our patients. We believe that asserting that power, it's important because transferentially something happens in the connection. So then we could analyze, you know, their uh, defenses, their histories, and sort of figure out what problematic relationships they're working through. And Mm -hmm. that's the first stage of critical therapy. In the second stage, there is almost a negotiation of power. Of of the patient sort of trying to usurp it, to take it back, to realize that ultimately they are the experts in their own lives. Our job is to ask questions, it's not to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. I think especially for people who have been marginalized and that have not had a voice, this process of claiming that power, that's what empowerment is. Yeah. We don't talk about it. We don't, we're not just giving it to you because it's not ours to give. Mm-hmm. We actually dynamically work at you coming to terms with your own power mm-hmm. and powerlessness because that exists as well and claiming what you claim in order to sort of assert yourself. And then the last stage of critical therapy is really learning how to negotiate and have power with someone because we don't do that anywhere else. You know, we spend an insane amount of work in our jobs, which is the place that has the most unequal, most authoritarian and abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. And yet we tell people, You should go have a healthy relationship and learn how to share power, although you don't practice it for over eight to 10 hours a day. Good luck. (laughs) So this is why I feel as therapists, it's almost a responsibility that we have to create those spaces because we learn by doing. Mm -hmm. We could intellectually talk about it. And that sounds great, but there's something viscerally that happens when you do it, when you, you know, get into conflict with someone, when you try to solve problems together, when you realize in some circumstances you do have more power and others you have less and so forth. Mm-hmm. I love that. So overall, then, with those three components of critical therapy, how does critical therapy then differ from traditional therapy? Is it mainly those last two? Yeah, usually traditional therapy, depending on where you fall, if you do like traditional psychodynamic psychoanalysis, you're always in a position of power. Some people are very like blank slate, you never reveal anything about yourself. So you Mm -hmm. hold the power and you never let go of it. And then there's more intersubjectivity schools and there's more attachment schools that talk about sharing power and being more collaborative. And again, but then you start being collaborative from the beginning. I found that to be very inauthentic for some people, honestly. And it is inauthentic. We're not sharing power. You're walking into my office and revealing things about your life. And it will take me a while to tell you about myself. So it it doesn't feel authentic. And I also don't think it's helpful. But I will tell you this, as clinicians, I found out that our model ends up being very difficult because if you're the therapist who likes to hold power, you love the first stage. You're like, yes, I know how to do this. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm the expert questioning, not reveal anything about myself. And if you're the therapist who likes to be collaborative, you hate the first stage because you 
you have to withstand the fact that people project things onto you, that you hold that power, and it'll take you a while to be more collaborative and share power. So it takes many different skills, but I think that that's necessary in order for the patient to go through a transformation. Interesting. Do you ever see people on both sides? Like I can kind of see myself toggle between the two. Really? Yeah, I think most, it's funny, I think social workers in particular, and people who are really into sort of social and individual liberation struggle Mm -hmm. with power, because power has been seen as something bad. But it Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be power is our ability to change the world, and the systems within that world that give us little or no ability to change it, right? So it's not just an individual thing, is the individual in the world? And how much does the world allow us to use our power? How much do we claim our power and so forth? But we we don't learn about power in that way. We learn about power as something coercive, as something that you should be fighting against. And I think even in intimate relationships, we don't really want to say that there's always a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. We're like, we're equal. We're, ne- we're, we're never equal. There's always, it's, it's a dynamic. So that means we always exchange those powers, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm more powerful. Sometimes you're more powerful. And that's fine as long as we don't see it as something that's bad that I'm going to use to control you. Right. I was just going to actually ask you about personal relationships, that sense of power or that shared power. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the reasons why I came to really want to do a deep analysis of power in the therapeutic relationship is because I worked for a lot of years at um, social service agencies, especially in domestic violence. Mm. So we worked with mostly women, because that's the reality, who would come into our shelters and we would provide therapy and we would quote unquote empower them. And what I discovered was that that model was not very efficient or very helpful because then the women became like their abusers. They thought empowerment means I'm going to tell you what to do. I don't care about how you feel and I'm going to claim my life. Mm-hmm. And that's not empowerment. That's abuse. Mm-hmm. And and it was through those sessions and through that work that I questioned, how do we get to have a model where people share power, where they feel comfortable owning, where they don't feel ashamed of it, where power doesn't mean if I don't like what you say, I'm just going to silence you or slap you if you're my child. And that takes a lot of work, but I think it makes us better human beings. And ultimately, it makes for a better society. Yeah. So what can healthcare providers do right now? Okay. Because again, you've got me thinking. When I think of the context of healthcare, when I think of the context of burnout, compassion, fatigue, exodus, people leaving the profession right now, as you see, where do we start, Sylvia, with respect to, and this goes for people who own their own practices, who are trying to establish, you know, a core, a core team there. But again, how does this organizational stuff impact the system and vice versa? Like, because the way I've always felt when it comes to empowerment for myself is like, I've always been of the mindset that I can't control other you know, systems and other people at just an individual level. But like, I I also know that I have a lot of power where I'm at and I can, and I can do what I can. Hence this podcast, you know, hence Mm -hmm. writing my book, right? Like that's the way I I am. But what about, you know, when, when people kind of feel like completely stuck and they feel lost and they feel unheard, they feel unseen. And on top of that, they're burning out from their jobs as well on the front lines. So yeah, a couple of things. I do think that you are correct in in so much as 
we sometimes think that we're powerless to systems, right? One of the things when I started talking about critical therapy and in a deep analysis of power, I was told by some clinicians, well, wouldn't that be depressing? Like, wouldn't your patients come in and be like, wow, this really sucks. And, you know, I often say we cannot solve a problem we don't have. Mm. It is by pretending that we don't have, you know, this problem is by pretending that we have some power that the system maintains itself, right? Mm. As long as we're all powerless, there's nothing to do, then I'm going to opt out or try to do something different. But I think it's when you actually realize that if we're all somewhat powerless, then we have some power. There's some collective power in our, in our being not powerful. And I think burnout is a real thing that's tied to money. So again, healthcare providers, people who are in the helping profession have been told a false narrative. And the narrative is in order to do good work, in order to help people, you can't make money. Mm -hmm. And if you make money, you sell out. Mm -hmm. Now that is an impossible dichotomy because at some point in your life, I guarantee you, especially as you get older, you want to have a comfortable life. And then you feel like, oh no, I'm selling out. So either I'm burned out and not very efficient or you just sell out and go do something else. So one of the most controversial thing about critical therapy is our sliding scale. So when I say sliding scale, people are like, oh, I know what you're saying. You have a set fee. And if people can't pay your fee, then you go down. No, that's not what we mean. Mm-hmm. Our our sliding scale goes up and down based on your income and resources. So a session could be, let's say, $5 or $2,000. And you know, People struggle with that, although Mm -hmm. it's equitable, meaning that every person who comes to the Institute ends up paying the same amount of money for their session based on their income and resources. People who pay a lot feel like, oh, is that really fair? I mean, it is fair theoretically, but I don't know, emotionally, I'm struggling with this. But the reason why we did this was obviously because we wanted to practice a politics of of equity, but also because the healthcare system, at least in the United States, is broken. Mm -hmm. You know, we could try to fight for a single payer system and so forth. It's going to take forever. So we're like, okay. That's great. And that might be down the road. But uh, what are we going to do today? Mm -hmm. How are we going to live out our politics? And how are we going to sustain a practice that five years from now, not everyone's leaving because we're not making enough money and it's really difficult. And I think that that's the problem with the system of healthcare. We don't really value healthcare. I mean, we don't value mental health. We also don't value healthcare. You know, and sometimes we just think, oh, doctors make a lot of money and that we ended that. The truth is hospitals in the United States make a lot of money, but that's because insurance companies are hoarding the money. So you have to overcharge in order to get paid some. It's a whole system. Mm -hmm. But I think if we started to think more like in order to have a comfortable life, in order to help the people we work with, in order for the people that come to us to see a different way of being in the world, we have to think of different ways of, of, of doing it. And, and I think that, you know, it was, it was interesting, the chapter in the book about the sliding scale, everyone had difficulty with it. People who are like extreme, right? were like, no, it's not fair. Rich people shouldn't pay more. Okay. We get that one. But people from the extreme left were like, what do you mean by comfortable living? How much should you be making? Which is so fascinating that it it has become like the lowest common denominator. How little can you make in order to survive, Mm -hmm. which is not a sustainable model as opposed to what do you need in order to be comfortable and do this work well? 
And thrive. Yeah. Wow. I love that concept of the sliding scale. And I love how you you took that organizationally into your hands so that you've because you valued healthcare and you wanted to ensure that people had equal access to healthcare services. So through this pandemic, has your practice maintain stability or improved in, in this Yeah, regard? no, I mean, we, we are the same. I mean, I think we've increased our services, obviously, because there's a greater need. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because we, we also made a um, commitment to every person who, who is at critical therapy sees people from all walks of life. So you can be like, I'm only going to see like the $300 people and I'm right. not going to see the $50 people. So oh, okay. I think because of that, it's very sustainable. And because of that, as a clinician, you actually get exposed to very diverse people with very diverse problems. Mm-hmm. And you also get to check your power and privilege. It's an actual living thing. You, It's not like, well, those people out there, I'm just going to go give money to charity, but I don't have to interact with them in every real way. Mm-hmm. One of the things I realized about people who are more affluent is the ability to not have to worry or talk about money. Mm-hmm. It's always mm-hmm. poor people who talk about money. Yeah, It's always when you're struggling that you talk about it. When you have it, you don't. So yeah. I think that this is, a, and I think for affluent people, what I've discovered amazingly enough is that there is a real need to have a deep analysis of their wealth. Some people are very ashamed of it. Some people want to hide it. Some people feel like they haven't earned it. So they need to make more in order to prove to their parents, like I'm better than you. It, it is, it's, it's never about the money. It's always about the power, you know, and wow. other things. Wow. I love that. That's so interesting to me. So how can critical therapy in your practice, how can it revolution? And you kind of touched on this, I think, how can it revolutionize the healthcare system? Well, I think it's, we need to demand more and we need to recognize our collective power. I think especially during COVID, this idea of community and collective power has sort of disseminated a little bit and has been lost, but I think we all crave it. I also I was a little disappointed with 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 us as you know including myself and I think all of us what happened is when covid happened mm-hmm. a lot of us saw opportunities for change in systems like schools were shut down all of a sudden everyone who criticized the public school system here had an opportunity to think of something different how we could do it differently but we didn't oh. all we did was we wanted to go back to normal Everyone talked about being back to normal. And and I think it's a missed opportunity. As a therapist, I also understand why it happened. One of the things we know about trauma is that when we're in the midst of it, we want to return to quote unquote normal. Where It's not the place where you start rethinking. It's not the place where you could dream. That's why kids who have been traumatized don't play. They don't have that imagination. Mm-hmm. So it was a missed opportunity, but I also want to be very cognizant and not to harden ourselves. It was also a scary time. Mm-hmm. So all of us were so much into, let's just go back to normal. I hope now, especially in the healthcare field, I hope that healthcare workers realize their power. I mean, you know, think about it. What if all healthcare workers were like, no, nah, we're not doing this anymore. Unless you change the system, we're not going to help you. 
it would be powerful, but we don't know that because we're taught to, especially, you know, lately we're moving more and more towards this very individualized, think about yourself, make sure you're okay, mm-hmm. take care of your own. Yeah. And therapy does that too, right? You go into a room with someone, all you talk about is your problems, as if somehow those problems are not related to bigger problems, like childcare, for example, if you have a kid in school and your school is closed and so forth. So we're all interconnected, but we've lost that. And I think that was an ideological move. I do. I don't think it's a coincidence. I love how you put that. And that's one of the, the focuses is the connection to like the systems, you know, religions, race, gender, like all of it. Wow. Yeah, And you know, Jennifer, one of the things that was really interesting for me was how, and I have this sometimes, how we're so afraid to take risks. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, especially about systems, we're like, oh, how are we going to create this organization? Oh, I don't know, but it hasn't been done that way. I don't think we should do it that way. We should just go back to the old system that didn't work, but maybe it'll work this time. And and I continue to challenge my colleagues to always think outside the box. And we will fail. I mean, mm-hmm. capitalism took forever to get here and there were many failures, right? right? Socialism, try that, didn't work very well, many failures and so forth. But it is by trying and thinking outside the box and learning to take risks that we might come up with a different system altogether. That's much smarter than any of us could have thought. Right. And that possibility, I know for me, is like a big part of what keeps me going and keeps me motivated for sure. So like when I think of the of healthcare providers who've now left, you kind of touched on an interesting thing. If you don't mind me chatting about this with you, about people becoming more about themselves in a way. I think this pandemic also, and uh, going through this working in healthcare, has also made us more conscientious of our well being as well. Like you know, traditionally healthcare providers were always serving, 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 but now I I see that people are really valuing their time, right? They're valuing their well being, which is a great thing. I just find like, because people are leaving the profession, I, I do, I'm concerned about the future of healthcare and not having enough providers, to be honest with you. Like, it's just, it's one of those things where I just wonder if, have we swung too far the other way now that we're not even wanting to be there for others anymore? Like, have we lost, I don't want to say yeah, our compassion I- for others, but is it possible? I th- I don't know that we lost compassion. I think it's the same argument where we talk about the great reset, where people are mm-hmm. not going back to work and, oh, my God, why they're not. Uh, the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, but why do right. we give them the tools and do we give them the compensation? And it's not just monetary time off paid vacation. What are we giving people that we expect so much from? Mm-hmm. And again, especially for healthcare workers, I could understand why it just, it sort of was a moment where like, is this worth it? I may love my job, but am I being appreciated? Am I, can I live a comfortable life? Can I take care of my child? Can I, and, and I think the more we ask those questions, and I hope greater systems and politicians really think about this and sort of like, it's not that people don't want to work. It's not right. that people got lazy. It's not like people got more into themselves. It's people said, I don't know, I'm worth more. Mm -hmm. That's what they actually said. And we don't want to say that because that's uncomfortable. We just put it on them like, oh, they just decided to stay home all of a sudden. Right, exactly. (laughs) As if. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking is that people are, that's, I I don't know, in a sense, that's kind of, you know, people stepping into their power in a way. Um, I just hope that people who are leaving are 
like finding fulfillment and they're finding, you know, something that, that works for them or working on that anyway. And they may not because, you know, the grass is always greener. And I, mm-hmm. I do understand there is the need or the fantasy of like, I'm going to make, a, you know, so much money and choose another career. And I still believe that most people who end up working in healthcare want to help people. So eventually that dies out and there is an inherent need of, I I know a lot of people who came back to being psychotherapists after doing, came back or was their second career because they were so dissatisfied with what they were doing day in and day out, you know? Um, And that's also something to think about. We go back to this idea. We spend so much time at our jobs. Mm -hmm. And if we don't like what we do, you might have great compensation and that's important, but that takes a toll on your physical and mental health. And I think it's the same with healthcare providers that they may love what they do, but it also takes a toll on their mental health and their physical health. And, and I think almost like if you work in the health field and if you work with people, you should probably have more time off. You Mm -hmm. should be compensated more because in order to be really efficient, you really need to be present with Mm -hmm. someone. One of the things I tell my clinicians is every six months, you need to take a two-week vacation minimum. If you don't, you will not be an efficient therapist. You will burn out. You're not going to listen to people. You're just going to be there. In order to be present and to really see another human being, you have to have that psychic space, mm-hmm. which we don't allow people to have. Somehow working became the, a way to show how efficient, how smart, how better we are. You know, mm-hmm. you tell someone I'm taking a week off, like a week. Wow. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to be checking email. No, don't check email. Take right. a week off and and really relax so you could come back and be more present, especially in the healthcare field, because you, you know, it's ourselves. We use ourselves, whether it's your hands, whether it's my brain, whether it's mm-hmm. our tools, it is part of who we are. Right. I was just having a conversation too, Sylvia, with a patient who is a healthcare provider as well. And just uh, normally a pretty occupied person, right? And now since being in hospital, not so much, it's different. The pace is different, obviously. For someone who is like in healthcare, for someone who's used to being on the go, constantly busy, how do they take that time for themselves? This is like a heavy question, but some people just don't know how to do that, I find, right? They have time, they don't know what to do with it. They would just rather be busy in a way because that's just what they're so used to. So is there anything you can suggest like to tell someone to just take two weeks off and not even check their email? For some, I think that would be hard. It would be hard for me, truthfully. Full disclosure. So let's talk about it. (laughs) It's while I have you here. (laughs) Well, I think the first question, and I was one of these people. And I also have to say for me, it's a little different because I, I often joke that I think my work is my hobby. So, mm-hmm. but so that's very, and not a lot of people are in that position. And yet I have learned that I need to take the time off and detach. One of the things I often ask myself and I ask people who can't do that is why, what is happening for you that if you sat with yourself with no interruptions, that would be diff- what comes up that you might want to look at. Mm-hmm. It is often and again, especially I don't, I, you know, I don't know about all the fields in healthcare, but I do know about psychotherapists in particular. We tend to do these jobs because we have had our own unresolved traumas, and sometimes we want to do, you know, to do right when where once was wrong, mm-hmm. and that's very important, and that probably makes us better at what we do. And at the same time, it could be a blind spot. 
So it's important to be able to recognize what is it about my job? What is it about this TV show? What is it about something that I need to always be on the go? Is it that I'm afraid of happiness? Is it that I'm afraid of the voices that come when I don't do that? Is it that in the stillness, I find things about myself I don't like? Mm-hmm. One of the things I often tell people about therapy that the hardest part of it is the ability to sit with things. You know, they come in, they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, whatever. I don't know what this lady's talking about. And then we get to it, you know, into the therapy months later, and then they feel something intensely. And I'm like, and they want to do something about it. I'm like, well, let's just sit with it first. Right. And that feels so difficult because we have to reckon with all those emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think a little bit of everything almost can kind of come up for me in a way, for sure, a good blend of all of that. Thank you for for sharing that because because uh, I think sometimes we we you know again being careful with asking for more time off. Let's say, well, you know, how are we going to make use of that time off so that we can you know show up and um, provide you know high quality care like we intend to. I also want to add because I don't want to you know do you know fall under the same fallacy of just making it all personal. I think right. it's also important to recognize that we do not live in cultures that allow us to do that without shaming. Right? Mm-hmm. When you tell someone, "Oh, I've taken three weeks off," everyone talks about, "Are you really dedicated to your job? Do you really care? How involved are you?" Especially in certain fields, like, "Well, that doesn't mean you're really committed." I've had people who were in sessions with me who would not shut their phone because they were afraid that if their boss calls them and they didn't pick up, they would be seen as not dedicated to their job. That's the reality of the world we live in. Our work has become our hobby, but it's more like this nightmare hobby that we we live with it, we dream with it. And remote work has been great and bad because remote work doesn't, unless you're a person who knows how to set boundaries, you could be working all the time by checking Mm -hmm. your email. Yeah. And I think that that's, and sometimes you need to because you might lose your job. And that's the other reality. So I think it's a combination of what's coming up for us, but also what are the structures around us that demand that we're on the go, always working, always checking email 24 mm-hmm. seven. Otherwise we're seen as lazy, not dedicated enough. We're not going to make it far and so forth. Right. And I think that's an important point for people who listen to this podcast, who are in that leadership space or have their own practice like yourself employ other people, right? So that they can put those structures in place. Because as much as our work, sometimes I feel like our work doesn't really owe us, they owe us safety, yes, they owe us, you know, pay for our services, they owe us those things. But sometimes I wonder, like, do they owe owe it to us to to be well? Do they owe it to us to be happy? Do they owe that to us? Sometimes I struggle with that, because I don't know, you know, and I don't know if that's just my own. Well, maybe the way to think of that is, I don't know how much they owe us, but do they create the environments that allow us to to be happy, to thrive? To thrive so maybe they don't yeah. owe us that happiness, but they certainly owe us the environment to be able to do that. When, for example, you know, I've known people who took a vacation, were about to go on vacation, they got called from work and their boss was like, you need to change that vacation. That's not really conducive right. to wellness and mental health. Mm-hmm. And I think especially for people that are in leadership positions. It's important what you say. It's important the policies that you set. And it's also important what you do. 
Mm-hmm. You can't be the boss that never takes off, but tells everyone to do it because people look, it's sort of like a, a little bit, I don't want to compare it to, but it's like parenting. You can't tell your child do this, but I'm not going to mm-hmm. do it. They're not going to believe you. Right. So you lead by example. And I, I think it's really important to set those examples. You have, again, we come back to this idea of power and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Think of it as I have a responsibility every six months to take two weeks off a lease. And if I don't do it, I am not pre- preaching what I'm saying and no one else is going to do it because they're going to look at me and be like, well, you don't do it. Mm-hmm. And I like for me, that comes back to integrity, you know, as a value. So tell us more about your book that was just released last month. I have to say, I, I loved when I went to your website and I saw liberation, empowerment, healing, like those three words. I just love those three words. Thank you. Um, it, it just spoke to me when I visited your site. And obviously, you know, everything you share today embodies those three words in terms of critical therapy. But can you tell us more about your book and how it's doing and where people sure. can connect with you? Sure. So the book came out, initially, it was going to be a zine. So I was like, I'm going to write a zine about critical therapy. It's going to be a one page. And we had, um, I worked with an illustrator. I wanted him to illustrate parts of it. It was great. And then we keep doing, and we're at 50 pages. So we're like, this is no longer a zine. Um, (laughs) So we decided to really, it's a very short book. It's very accessible. This is one of the reasons why we have some illustrations. So it's not scary for people. It is about the work of the Institute, but it's also about, I think anyone working with people in the healthcare industry is about how do you have relationships of care? Mm. How do you have relationships of love in a system that romance and sex got co-opted for intimacy and love? And then we go back to this idea of how do I create love with boundaries? Well, yes. How do you do it as a healthcare provider? It's probably going to help you in how you do it with your partner or with other people in your life. And it's really, uh, I want it to be accessible also because I didn't want to, I didn't want to credential myself. I think sometimes, especially in the healthcare field, but in all fields, we write these books that are awesome and only three people read it and we feel accomplished and they think we're great, but it doesn't reach the people we want it to reach, right? Mm -hmm. And I hope that clinicians read it and think about how can I use power? How can I think about power differently? I hope that patients from all walks of life and mental health or physical health walk, you know, read this and then walk into their doctor's office and talk about these things. Mm -hmm. Especially if you think about, I think in therapy, sometimes people might discuss power, but if you think about your relationship with your doctor, that is really a power over. Mm -hmm. I know so many people who don't ask questions and then they leave. They're like, what is, I don't, I don't know what's happening. I, I, I got to go read on Google, which is not a great way to really have advice on your uh, healthcare, but and and mental and physical health, but it's, we still have this authority. Doctor has the authority. Don't ask too many questions. And I challenge people in the healthcare industry. How much are you open to being asked those questions? Mm -hmm. How much do you invite people to really be a part, take and be a part and take a part in their healing? Right. So liberation is not just, oh, we're liberated from oppressive systems. They're oppressive system, even in our healthcare, the way we set it up, the way that we talk to the people that are our patients. And I think that's really important to challenge ourselves and be like, am I collaborative? Am I really explaining this? Am I allowing to ask questions? Mm-hmm. Love that. Or to disagree? Because sometimes mm-hmm. a patient will be like, I don't want to do that. And they're like, well, forget it then. Forget yeah, it. As opposed exactly. to, 
Well, maybe there's another way. Let's talk about it. What are you right. willing to do? You or, know? Li- or label them as non-compliant. But that, exactly. that drives me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> drives me yeah. crazy. That's a big piece that I'm I'm very passionate about. What you just mentioned there, even just down to gowns and very thin hospital beds, like all of that to me is it's reflective of what you just just. It's just power. Explained. It's it all is. about it's power. totally power. And I and I'm seeing that more and more the more I practice each and every day. And one of the things that I'm passionate about is guiding patients to reclaim their power in this very vulnerable state again that they're in. But that that vulnerability, it's just, it's embedded in the system and the way we do things in healthcare, uh, unfortunately. So I also wonder how much is because we're so afraid of vulnerability, right? And and especially as providers, we're afraid of it because mm-hmm. to to be actual in, in a process of healing with someone reveal something about ourselves it's a it's a very tender moment Mm -hmm. and I think again we go back to our schools and and our education we don't learn how to be tender we don't learn how to be vulnerable without Mm -hmm. thinking like whoa that's too much what are you doing over there or oh you shouldn't be doing that it's never how are you authentically engaging with a person in their healing which honestly in the process Maybe not, it doesn't heal you, but it does make you a better person and being able to sit with someone in their vulnerability and to be able to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that I don't know how you create trust and rapport if you're just very robotic and, you know, but yet that's the way people were trained in healthcare, like you said, is just show no emotion, right? And um, I do challenge that to some extent without crossing any therapeutic boundaries, like you said, of course, but we are human too. And you know, someone going through such pain and suffering, if that doesn't impact you, or you don't connect with that, I don't know, like I, you know, in terms of empathy and stuff, I I wonder, (laughs) you know, I do, I wonder a bit. So where can people connect with you, Sylvia? You've been great, like just a wealth of information. Thank you. It's uh, criticaltherapy.org. Also, if you just do Critical Therapy Institute, you could find us on our website. Also on our website, there's a link to my Instagram account, which is my last name. So forget about it. Um, So (laughs) basically, just look for Critical Therapy. You try to find Sylvia Dutkiewicz. Good luck. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. I felt like I feel like we can continue this conversation. I feel like one thing always leads to another. And that's what I love about um, I love about doing this and meeting people like yourself who are very expansive and just show people a different way of, yeah, of finding their power again and sharing it and um, at least like acknowledging it in the first place for what it is. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. Any final words before I let you go? Yes, thank you so much for having me. And And I think what you're doing is very important. Um, I often say that we can't change anything unless we're willing to have difficult conversations. Even if you don't agree with half of the things you've heard, at least be open to that experience. Challenge yourself with why do I agree with this? Why? Maybe there's a better way I haven't even thought about. By the way, email me, contact me. I would love to hear feedback. I, I, I'm a person who I would like to continue to grow. Yeah. I would like to not think I have all the answers yet. Oh God, I hope not. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I love the fact that you are conversing with people because it, it is through this dynamic of connecting, of talking, of like, hmm, I never thought about that. That's interesting that we get to imagine different worlds. Yeah. And I really believe like just ha- like you never know what conversation will spark that change that you were just talking about or that person to think of that different way that can benefit the collective, really. So thank you so, so much. 
And thank you so uh, much. You take care. Thank you so much. You too. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes, and you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jenniferGeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support.